Hello, hey everyone, it's six o'clock, so thank you all for joining. Hey Gates, thanks for joining us. Hello everybody, thank you very much for your invitation. Let me first introduce the, the Lorenum team that is on this call. Uh, so first of all, there's uh, Peter Baumann, Monk Anthony, who actually writes the, the Giant of Art timeline. Um, this timeline, just to remind you, it's like 10 chapters in total. We already released two of them. Um, and for every chapter, we want to do a Twitter spaces to discuss it. Um, there's also Conrad, uh, who is, I think he's dialed in from the Lorandom ca- uh, accounts. Um, Conrad and I will be co-hosting uh, this talk. Um, and then, of course, there is Kate's, Kate Vess, uh, our, our guest today, uh, who is the founder of Kate Vess Gallery uh, in Zurich, Switzerland, uh, which has been focused on generative and new media arts since 2017. Um, and this gallery has been showcasing and distributing the work of both established and emerging artists uh, in these fields um, and has organized, in our opinion, like very important exhibitions uh, such as um, Automat und Mensch in 2019, which was created by Georg Beck and Jason Bailey. Um, but yeah, Kate, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Um, and I'm also interested to learn like where your interest in, in modern art, modern art uh, began. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, once again, I don't really like to speak about myself, to be honest with you. Um, but yes, um, my my background is actually very diverse. Um, I guess my artistic uh, sort of relevance starts from my childhood because I've been in theater and music and I've been always kind of developing my career towards uh, performing and uh, playing piano, singing and playing in a theater. So I guess my education about the history of modern art and uh, most of it from music perspective, um, musical history came from the childhood because I was really passionate about that. And um, later at when I was a teenager, um, my life has changed and I developed my career a little bit in a different direction, <clears throat> but not too far away because I think, you know, music is very mathematical and I developed my career in finance and math. So not too far away and um, and been uh, in banking and asset management and coming from investment um, side, uh, I've been always um, looking and collecting arts, mostly photography and contemporary art. And by engaging uh, from the collector's perspective first, for almost like five to seven years, I would say, and really, really, really um, um, spending too much time, I would say, from uh, for collecting and visiting all the fairs and the galleries opening and artist studios. I think it was from 2014 towards 2016. That's when I also decided that I uh, I'm going to leave uh, financial uh, industry and start my own thing. And uh, that said, I opened up my consultancy business back at the time. Um, about advisory services for collecting and um, managing alternative assets, which are obviously related to arts as well. And in 2017, um, just by chance, I uh, I was uh, in contact with one of the um, photography gallerists, actually, and 
I, I, I had this idea why not to open up uh, the space in Zurich just to help him out because he was in different location. And by writing a business plan and sort of brainstorming this, I ended up opening the gallery eventually alone, not, not with a partner. Um, but uh, that's uh, I came across the interesting space. I mean, the concept changed as well because I was ending up to do it alone, not not with a concept of existing gallery. And I didn't want to, you know, if I would do it alone, I thought like I don't want to do it in a classical way. I don't want to see the sort of um, white cube, obscure uh, space, very cold, very uninviting, uh, most of the time very intimidating, where once you go to the gallery and there is no information and someone is sitting just behind the counter and nobody wants to talk to you because you are not like one of the famous collectors, for example, or I don't know, the, the, the personally not engaged with the gallery uh, somehow that they can meet and greet you and welcome you nicely. So I wanted to create something different uh, where the gallery would serve the purpose of almost a museum where you can actually invite more wider audience and try to educate if uh, if audience wants to be educated, where they can sit down, enjoy, read a book, um, get access to the library, which I, I, I have quite a lot of books and collect books as, as well. Um, and uh, feel like home, you know, around art and, and discuss and, you know, get familiar. Also mostly focusing on the new generation of collectors because this is the most important generation, you know, because I want to live around people who are also passionate about the same things I'm passionate about. So that's how I started. Um, really a, like a short story. <laughs> No, thank you for the introduction, Kate, and uh, thank you for actually joining us for this kind of uh, more broad chapter two discussion of our timeline. Um, and I, I think before we get started into some of the moments that we highlight here today, I wanted to ask kind of Peter, what was like the idea behind starting the modern art era at 1850 instead of 1860? I think when you look at a lot of previous timeline or historical resources, you see that the modern era began around 1860, but for us, we we started a decade earlier. So what was the, the thought process behind that? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think that's a really good question. Uh, so like the short answer is that my favorite history of, of digital art or electronic art has, is probably Frank Popper's Art of the Electronic Age. And he begins the story of electronic art with uh, the arts and crafts movement and the arts and crafts movement was kind of directly inspired by this uh, uh, London Great Exhibition, uh, this World's Fair in London in 1851. So we'll be able to talk about that in the first moment, but that's why we started it there, just because of that connection uh, from uh, Frank Popper to the arts and crafts movement. And, and I'll talk a bit about how that's connected. The ANC movement is connected to this uh, great exhibition yeah and i think with that we can kind of jump right into like that that first moment you mentioned the 1851 the great exhibition of london lights uh, early spark by the, the arts and craft movement um and then kind of just talking about how it ties to industrialization and kind of art nouveau or kind of the Bauhaus movement peter yeah sure so again like frank popper starts 
his history of electronic art with arts and crafts. And the arts and crafts movement was directly inspired by uh, this great exhibition of London, because, you know, this was really the first time that uh, a lot of industrial and manufactured goods were being kind of produced and, and showcased. You know, this is 1850. So, you know, this is still the beginning of industrialization. Some, you know, Western Europe, it's been going on for uh, a few decades, but it has not reached a lot of the world yet. And so this was kind of the first time a lot of these manufactured goods were introduced. And the arts and crafts movement was inspired by how poor the quality was of these manufactured goods. And so the arts and crafts movement kind of ironically, because it was such an important part of sort of mechanization of art history, but they were uh, staunchly opposed to this kind of cheaply made manufactured goods. And, and that was kind of the, uh, where they decided, uh, that was the inspiration for their founding. Um, and that was, that influential kind of, the influence that they had on the arts and crafts is, is the main reason why we started here. And yeah, Kate, is there anything you wanted to add about uh, arts and crafts movement or about when you would start the kind of history of modern art or uh, this great exhibition of London? Yeah, of course. Um, thank you. Well, I think uh, by first receiving the points uh, of uh, milestones uh, in the history of art that you have shared with me, I was first a bit like, oh my God, uh, interesting why these particular points, but after I looked at them more closely, it makes sense because I think the Crystal Palace exhibition, uh, which also was uh, this great exhibition of London, which was organized uh, by uh, Prince Albert. Um, I mean, initially, I think it was, I always tried to connect it with also political situation, what was back at the time, because it always has this meaning. Um, and the Brit British um, economy, you know, it was like very near in its heights, you know, in comparison to the rest of the world. And I guess that was also one of the parts like why um, Prince Albert wanted to showcase British industrial technology and culture um, and sponsored like, you know, the whole uh, exhibition. Uh, at the end of the day, like they ended up, of course, showcasing also like uh, international uh, contributors and thousands of objects, uh, including also companies and individuals. And afterwards, you know, arts and crafts movement was like became quite uh, important uh, and uh, and uh, movement. Um, I also think, you know, we should bridge it to somehow if it influenced somehow to generative art and if we want to find these points somehow. Um, if we do, I think, you know, um, this um, particular minds milestone, from my perspective, I'm not an art historian, eh? um, I think it, it kind of um, sought to promote craftsmanship and all these techniques and the most important integration of all art into everyday life. So like generative and, you know, um, crypto art or web-free movement, uh, sort of uh, also the same, um, the same uh, ambition, you know, that to, to bring art into everyday life for everybody. And I think that was also having more or less the same purpose at the end of the day. 
apart from what you mentioned, Peter? Yeah, I, I think that that is a, a really critical part of, of this uh, movement. And and also with arts and crafts, uh, what's important is, is the effect that it also had on the Art Nouveau movement uh, that followed. And, and then uh, from there, uh, you know, constructivism and, and, and Bauhaus and, and Victor Vazzarelli and, and Grav. And, and so it's kind of the, I see it as sort of the, the modern beginning of, of the story. And, and if you look at the timeline of chapter two, you can, we go into a lot closer detail of, of exactly how the arts and crafts and Art Nouveau and, and Bauhaus movements were connected. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Art Nouveau took many ideas from arts and crafts and um, but I think they were, they were like combining also with more organic forms and getting inspiration also from nature um, in comparison to arts and crafts. But yeah, I think it's definitely Art Nouveau embraced a lot of aspects of industrialization and as well uh, the materials and techniques uh, from arts and crafts. I really like it how you also discuss the political situation. I think that's also inspiring like for, for, for these days. Like it's probably not a coincidence that the US is kind of the epicenter of charitable arts at the moment, potentially, mm-hmm. after leading like the yeah, technological developments on the internet for like the last decades. So I think it's very very interesting. Uh, the next moment we, we wanted to discuss is where most timelines begin. When it comes to, to modern art, um, in 1863, uh, Manet created the work Le Déjeuner sur l'air, uh, which was rejected by the Paris Salon, uh, Salon for its unconventional style and subject matter. Um, and after this, Manet, together with Cézanne and some other artists, uh, established the Salon de Refusé, um, which translates to the exhibition of rejects. Um, and I was wondering, Kate, like, do you think we can draw any parallels between this moment in art history and the rise to significance of the generative art movements? Mm, I think we can draw significance to all the points of the history. I think all the points that mentioned in chapter one of your series and chapter two have some impact, uh, some of them more significantly, some less significant on generative art and computer art. Um, I mean, contemporary one. Um, art Nouveau... Um, I mean, it's we're still talking about the Belle Epoque. Uh, I mean, when you talk about the Manet work rejected by Perry Salon. And um, yeah, I think uh, Impressionism's movement and, uh, you know, Manet's work as a pre-Impressionism um, sort of thing um, is definitely a, a good point to start uh, looking at the references. But... I just want to say that chapter one of your series also had a very um, a, a lot of points that I think are very significant uh, and impacted as well generative art scene. Um, saying talking about the Manet's rejected thing, I, I love this story. Uh, when I was learning the history of art, I I particularly enjoyed that because you know he was rejected and we said like okay how. Um, we are going to just do ourselves and uh, organize the exhibition like Salon du Refusé. Um, I remember talking with Georg Bach in 2018 when we've been doing this blockchain exhibition and uh, I 
we invested a lot of energy into um, explaining people why uh, the blockchain art is art and, you know, educational sessions, etc. And we were making jokes that probably we just, just have to call this exhibition Salon du Refuse and just call it the day, you know, because at the end of the day, uh, you don't see those guys in the museums. Of course, you know, we didn't know that it's going to be uh, so widely accepted uh, very, very soon, you know. We, I, knew, I felt that it's going to be eventually accepted, but I didn't realize it's going to be so soon. Amazing. Thanks, Kate. Um, at the same, like around this period in time, a little bit later, uh, Cezanne also created the, the Mont Saint-Victoire uh, series. Um, and Peter, maybe I can, I can ask this to you. Like, why do you think Cezanne was such an important figure uh, in modern art history? Um, and specifically this series, like why was it so influential? Yeah, so th this series was uh, especially where Cezanne started uh, in particular kind of breaking from the these traditional conventions and you know flattening space. He was using he started using a lot of uh, geometric shapes and abstraction. So he treated, so he has a quote of saying that uh, painters should uh, quote unquote, uh, treat nature by means of the cylinder, the sphere, the cone. And, and so this is really when, you know, you start seeing uh, these representations of reality start to kind of uh, fracture with Cezanne. And, and, uh, and I think it's most clear and most obvious in this subject matter of uh, uh, Mont Saint-Victoire. And, you know, later, you know, not very long after uh, he finished with the series, which I, I believe he started it around in the 1870s and he finished it around 1906, 1907. And it was just after that, that uh, Cubism, that Brock and, and Picasso uh, started Cubism and, and, you know, Picasso was very open about how uh, influential Cezanne was uh, to Cubism, you know, even saying that Cezanne uh, uh, was the father of us all. So uh, th this is a hugely important kind of connection and, uh, you know, art history from this sort of impressionism movement to the, uh, the sort of abstract geometric abstraction movement. Absolutely. Thanks. I think, I think also like, you know, because Cezanne was so early like um, sort of pioneer for cubism. Um, I think he was there, like together, of course, with Brock and Picasso, like they were um, trying to break the objects into, uh, like trying to, to, to develop this style where the objects would be like broken up and reassembled and then analyzed in abstract form. And um, I think Kenny Schechter was referring in one of his articles uh, about cubism, that they were the first one looking or in search for the fourth dimensional, um, for, 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 for the fourth dimension. And I think this is also an interesting reference because cubists were in search for the fourth dimension and, you know, with their um, generative art, probably we are looking for like fifth, sixth dimensions already. Um, and I like that reference. I just remembered this Kenya's article. I don't remember uh, which one, but I think it was last year. Yeah, I think that that mention of the fourth dimension is is really uh, 
really critical. And, and I think that that also plays an important role in this history of, you know, digital art and electronic, electronic art, because, you know, the fourth dimension is, is time. And so time in a painting or time in plastic art is, is the sense of motion. And so much of electronic art is the history of motion in art and going from, you know, a static painting to, to a digital, you know, uh, immersive and animated experience. And, and so I think that that, this kind of period between uh, Cezanne and, and Picasso with cubism and adding the fourth dimension is, is so important in that, you know, that uh, step in generative art history. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, it's also interesting to see like how many generative artists like have been directly inspired by, by Cezanne. Um, because like the, the Mont Saint Victoire, like Vera Molnar has a series dedicated to it. Um, and just last week, like we had a call with Harvey Rayner. Um, well, yeah. actually, at Twitter Spaces, uh, and he also mentions that like Cezanne's color work is like a direct inspiration for him. Uh, so these like intergenerational dialogues are also super super interesting. Absolutely, um, yeah. And the next moment we actually had on our, on our well, we have, the next moment that we think is like very significant, like from this period. Um, I think we already touched on this like briefly, but um, La Demoiselle d'Avignon uh, by Picasso, which kicks off Cubism um, in 1907. Um, is there something, um, Kate, you want to add about the Cubis Cubism movements and the impact on, um, yeah, on later art history? Mm, well, in particular about that painting, uh, I, I think, you know, Picasso was like, you know, was very radical, like took a very radical approach, I would say, um, uh, in this particular painting. And uh, there are like multiple perspectives with single image and lots of introduction and elements of African tribal masks and, you know, a lot of things that then will be later associated with Cubism. But I think it also came again, I want to say from political kind of thing, because again, like France was in, in um, uh, later uh, at the end of 19th century, um, going through a, through a well period of economy and was also expanding a lot into uh, colonials, like, you know, people could travel to Africa particularly and I think, you know, uh, Paris was also a very um, important cultural hub, um, center of Art Nouveau and like for many other um, different movements which actually emerged also during the Belle Epoque. And I think that also um, helped a lot, you know, the, the artists to be inspired from the African culture and also maybe... Uh, you know, there was no internet, there was no connection. So this time sense and also that, you know, to maybe um, recall the or imagine, you know, this travel in time or different dimensions. I think it was also inspired by that, that, you know, with the, the whole culture uh, in, in uh, that it was in France at that time. Because if you look at the other countries, at the same time, there was a different sort of movements and different feelings. 
Yeah, and, and we will definitely get to some other countries, especially when we start talking uh, soon about Bauhaus. But uh, yeah, I, I think just to tack on a little bit more about this painting and just the, the beginning of of uh, analytical cubism here in, in 1907, uh, just and touching again on that fourth dimension, you know, in addition to kind of bringing that element of dynamism to you know a static canvas, it, it also did a lot to uh, present these multiple perspectives of an object and, and break down uh, you know this kind of single composition and and this fixed viewpoint that had been uh, you know so important in in art history you know going back to at least since the the Renaissance. So uh, not only did it you know suggest this you know time and fourth dimension this passage of time but it also shattered this this notion of the fixed viewpoint and and both of those were so important to uh you know the upcoming op art and kinetic art movements which were you know two really important predecessors of of digital generative art and and again you know just going back to that how how important uh movement and the portrayal of, of movement was, you know, back when you didn't have a digital screen, you only had a canvas. I, you know, I think it's so fascinating how these, you know, the clever different, the different kind of clever ways that these artists try to incorporate that into their work. I think it's, you know, super interesting. Thank you for both of those responses. Um, and I think as we move on to like the next moment, it's still within the same year of 1907, and we kind of talk about Hilma Offklint's uh, really monumental series, The Ten Biggest. Um, and maybe you can ask Peter if you can kind of expand on why this series was so significant to Clint's creative process and maybe how this style of non-objective abstraction kind of helped lead to some of the generative uh, aesthetics or maybe even generative ideas that we see today. Yeah, sure. And of course, um, I, yeah, I can touch on this briefly, but you know, what, what's so interesting about you know these pieces from 1907 is that you know they if you look at a art history textbook or, you know, you Google it online of, of, you know, who, you know, quote unquote invented, you know, abstract art or geometric abstraction, or like when was the first abstract painting? You know, usually you get answers like Kandinsky or you know, Mondrian or Malievich. Uh, and all of those works were, you know, close to 10 years or at least, you know, eight years. I think Malievich started working on, uh, a lot of his entirely abstract work around 1913, so six years later. Uh, so this predates all that work, and and I think it, and not only that, but Offklent made it clear that you know she didn't want the work shown until 20 years after her passing, and they, it, then it still wasn't really even discovered until 19, you know, 86. Uh, so you know we're talking. 80 years after, you know, it was first produced. And, and you know, so these works have such an, an interesting story in the kind of the, the history of geometric abstraction, but I think they they critically kind of highlight some of the obstacles that that women artists had to face where, you know, they, they didn't have a place to exhibit their work. And then, you know, they weren't even uh, comfortable enough to exhibit it, you know, during their lifetime. So, but yeah, I'd love to hear uh, Kate's perspective on this as well. Mm, I, I actually love that you mentioned this point because I mean, to me, it um, represents two things. And I think you already mentioned that. So I totally agree with you. 
that first of all, as a female artist, you know, she was earlier, um, you know, and she was actually early for all of us. And for the ones who actually doesn't know Hilma of Klint, I think she was practicing also, it was very popular back at the time, this sort of transcendental spiritualism, meaning that you kind of gather <laughs> gather and uh, have this uh, seance um, in French and try to um, connect with uh, spirits, um, with multiple spirits or with just one spirit, either directly or through the medium. And it was very, very popular. And I think she started practicing that very early. Um, and I think got involved even more. And her practice is uh, very much uh, related to that. And I think why is it important to, um, to, to speak about her is, again, it's this sort of travel in time first. And that, you know, she got this commission um, of uh, 10 biggest she claimed that she had this communication from the spirit on one of the seances and um, and uh, been asked to uh, to uh, to create this work and then she started creating and creating and creating and then um, I mean she wasn't exhibited of course because she, because of her will she said it's too early the, the world is not ready for my work uh, please exhibit my work after 20 years of my after the death. Um, but eventually, you are right, Peter. It was very, very later when um, it was publicly shown. And if you look at her work, if, for the ones who haven't seen that, I think it's so contemporary. It's mind-blowing. It's just you are looking at the absolutely uh, contemporary art. And I, you start to believe maybe she did have a connection with the spirits and she could speak uh, to that. And maybe it was some sort of um, voice from the future, you know, um, that talked to her and asked her to create all this uh, sort of uh, planes, you know. So I think, yeah, apart from being early, being female artist, uh, underrated, not referenced enough um, for this thing and then uh, for been very very early uh, time in her work and again this um, more like a transcendental spiritualism which is uh, interesting that's what i wanted to add thanks kate for this additional background on the on the amazing uh Ilma of um i see some new faces in the in the spaces by the way and i just want to mention that we like the way the spaces is um structured is that we go like through moments uh, which can be found on timeline.lorandom.art. Uh, we're currently discussing the, the second chapter, so the more modern art one. Um, and this brings us to the, the fifth moment that we're going to discuss. Um, we're actually combining a few moments here. Um, so we situate, situate ourselves in 1915, um, and constructivism has just been established by Tetlin and Rochenko. Um, and Malevich also organized his uh, 0.10 uh, exhibition. Um, and Peter, I actually want to ask you, like, um, for this this last moment that I mentioned, uh, Malevich, his exhibition, uh, you write uh, that suprematism's exaltation of pure form and geometry would become fundamental aspects of digital generative arts. Um, I was just going to ask you, like, can you expand a bit on, on this specific line? Yeah, so with suprematism and, and their focus on on 
pretty much complete and total abstraction. I mean, with, you know, as evidenced by, uh, by black square, which is, you know, literally just a painted black square on a, on a white background. And so this, this really highlights the kind of importance of geometry in uh, generative arts history. And so if you look back at chapter one of our, of our timeline, you know, a lot of those moments were, were looking at the development of visualizing mathematics and visualizing algorithms and, and the importance of, you know, geometry and, and logic and, and algorithmic thinking in that kind of visualization of mathematics. And so I think that uh, this kind of Malievich's uh, suprematism and, and his focus on geometry, it, it was fundamental to, uh, you know, digital generative art when, you know, later artists would use a lot of these uh, same mathematic principles and start coding their work uh, and start uh, representing uh, shapes and geometry through, through code. And I think this is really kind of like the, one of the most important uh, predecessors and forebears. You know, is there anything uh, about suprematism and Malievich or constructivism that you wanted to add, Kate? Mm, it's interesting um, because for me, it's not only about the geometry. I think um, you mentioned on timeline there, like Rochenko and Tatlin, constructivism. And those two movements were like, uh, the same time which was interesting because constructivism was mostly um, focused with the idea that art should serve like a greater purpose and contribute to construction society and everything and it has to be functional and practical and suprematism was more like a metaphysical sort of way and um, about Malevich uh, black square I think we just wanted to sort of reject any uh, representa representational art and um, they didn't know probably how to express themselves like beyond the canvas and beyond the depicting this physical world that's why for me suprematism is like very metaphysical um, and, and that's the reason why it's so important for generative art as well um, yeah like you know it's like it's like the movement which was seeking to transcend from for the, the physical world and and get pure forms colors and you know individual exp uh, uh, exploration if that makes sense yeah and it's so also so like you mentioned about suprematism and constructivism it's it's so fascinating that this kind of rivalry between Tatlin and, and Malevich and, and how interesting it was that, you know, they were exhibiting in, in the same year, 1915, and, you know, even in the same uh, place in in Russia. So such uh, such an interesting moment uh, and year in, in the kind of history of art and the, in the history of the story of generative art, 1915. But I think it's also, again, related to the history of, like, you know, what was actually happening um, in Russia yeah. back at the time. Yeah, the revolution and World War One. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, there was a certain propaganda 
taken place um, for particular things and, you know, industrialization and Rochenko and Tatlin who've been believing that, you know, in this propaganda probably. Um, and as much as I enjoy Rochenko photography, I, I see this uh, influence, political influence a lot. Um, and probably the other party, you know, who've been like suprematists, they've been um, by intuition probably disagreeing, you know, what's going on and what is like w with the reality around them. And as much as I, I, I looked and, and read about Malevich Black Square, there's a lot of different stories and of, of how it was uh, painted and created. I think it was um, more like... A, he was like very, like pure, like really talented people can feel time or what's going to happen in a couple of years by themselves. And I think it was just sort of the feeling of that there is no other way to express the world around you or how the world will change around you. And we're talking about the world war um, by just sort of eliminating to level zero because everything will be just washed away from the surface. And that's the reality. And probably this is the intuition, the artist's intuition, that there is no other way to express yourself, particularly on canvas. So it is very, yeah, individual, but I think suprematism is one of my favorite movements. That's why I'm so emotional when I speak about that. Yeah, thank you for those responses. I really like how you kind of mentioned it's like one of the first movements that kind of seemed to transcend the medium that it was created on and like the influence that played in like future endeavors of creative processes. And uh, as we kind of move to our next moment uh, from 1919, we kind of talk about one of the first large institutions that played a big role in some of the most influential developments. And it's when Walter Gropius founds uh, the Bauhaus. Um, uh, maybe... can, can I inter interrupt you? I'm so yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Kate. I am wondering... Uh, it really uh, left me puzzled why there was no Dada movement, which was born the same year mentioned on the timeline. Yeah, I think um, in terms of the history or the importance of, of kind of this movement in early 20th century art, generative art, I think there's no question that, uh, you know, I think the... and this is something that lots of art historians mention is, you know, Dada along with constructivism and, and usually futurism and, and or suprematism is mentioned too. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Uh, Dada is one of, if not the most important uh, movements in the story. And it's very much, uh, it plays a central role on the timeline in chapter two. Uh, we didn't mention it here. Uh, in these top 10 moments, at least uh, explicitly, just, you know, because of constraints and time. But I think it's a really good point that uh, that Dada deserves mention and yeah. around the same time period. Is there anything you want to add about it, Kate? No, no, I just think, you know, like maybe when we talk about the next point of Marcel Duchamp, we can talk about Dada as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Great. Who uh, didn't identify as a Dadaist, but but certainly, uh, with, along with surrealism, was one of the, you know its, and conceptual art was one of its you know biggest yeah. figures. Yeah, I think we know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so I think we can transition to kind of the Bauhaus's influence, uh, and maybe even kind of tack on that eighth moment that we have mentioned of like Gunter Stoll's uh, being named the director 
how the Bauhaus were even workshopping kind of the influence that had and kind of the, the large regard of like the, the influence of the females that were really leading the processes within the Bauhaus. Um, if Peter wants to, Peter or Kate wants to expand on that. Maybe I'll just really briefly talk about like connect arts and crafts to Bauhaus again. And then Kate, you can please feel free to take it from there. But yeah, just going back to, I really want to hammer this connection between arts and crafts and Bauhaus and, uh, you know, arts and crafts was really about synthesizing this kind of, uh, relationship between artists, machines, and art. And then William Morris had this, uh, took the stand against poorly made manufactured goods, which again, he he encountered for the first time at that uh, the World's Fair in 1851. And, but then it was Henry van de Velde, who, a Belgian, uh, who brought these kind of arts and crafts and Art Nouveau ideas to Germany and Henry van de Velde, he started the, the Weimar School of Arts and Crafts. And Walter, so he was Belgian. And in, 2000, in 1915, uh, again, like Kate said, the, the kind of the history and the context matters so much. In 2015, uh, because he was Belgian, he had to leave Germany because of World War One, And uh, Walter Gropius took over at that Weimar School of Arts and Crafts. And uh, it was from there that Gropius turned the school into the Bauhaus in, in 1919. And that, that's kind of where the story starts. And I'll let Kate talk about uh, its influence, but I just wanted to highlight that uh, uh, some of that uh, genealogy one more time. So you let me talk about the influence. <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> I, I think... Oh, God. Um, well, I think it kind of goes without saying that the Bauhaus movement is uh, clearly, even from the aesthetical point of view, has a huge influence on generative art. And, the, yeah, aesthetics is definitely uh, um, picked up uh, quite quite vividly in a majority of the works, particularly if we look at the earlier um, works by generative artists. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about our contemporary artists that we all know from recent years. Um, but I think um, what I personally like about the Bauhaus movement is that the philosophy was sort of um, aimed to uh, very holistically arrange everything together. Yeah. And like emerge all the different elements and fine arts and architecture and technology together and bring this to social and cultural change, you know, through this sort of movement. And I think it's also, apart from just aesthetical, geometrical point of view and design and everything, which is very obvious, and I don't think I need to talk about that, I think there is a certain similarity of generative art being social and being trying to change our culture through this as well, because I've, see, I've seen a lot of people join in the space, uh, started collecting generative art without any connoisseurship about art or fine art or history or design or photography. And then through that, they got involved. And this is what really I admire is that, you know, it engages people and it brings on the surface so many different layers um, and encourages people to learn. Yeah, I, <laughs> sorry to... Uh to uh, throw you that hot potato there but no I think you answered it beautifully and and 
just wanted to also add on the kind of connection from the constructivism school to to Bauhaus and uh, like through the works or through some of the professors there. Uh, so you have Vesely Kandinsky and then uh, Laszlo Mahal-Naj as well. Uh, so they took those constructivist ideas and brought them to the Bauhaus, especially kind of integrating art and design and technology. And then just kind of reflecting on some of the staff at the school in general, uh, you know, Annie and Joseph Albers, you have Johannes Itten and Paul Clay and, and Kandinsky and, and Stragel. So, uh, and, and then uh, Mahali Naj. So it, it was just uh, a wildly important uh a kind of movement that started here in 1919 and you know unfortunately it was shut down i think it was 1933 and you know that really precipitated along with the rest of world war ii this kind of art drain or brain drain from uh, continental europe uh, towards the united states and maybe we can talk about that uh, later but uh, it just such a hugely important uh, uh, moment on the timeline and is, okay. if there's anything else you want to add Kate yeah absolutely I think I should add to that beautiful group of artists uh, Josef Albus who is usually um, very much overlooked uh, from the um, also when we talk about the Bauhaus movement and I think he brought a lot um, to all, also to our contemporary scene um, a lot of quotes that can be used you know when we talk about the um, our space now um but yeah absolutely yeah peter thank you very much for pointing that out um i mean um there was a lot of experimentation and uh, lots of theoretical studies and i think you know kandinsky style also changed a lot and was influenced a lot by Bauhaus. yeah thank you for that kind of historical lesson and like genealogy lesson behind the Bauhaus and some of the large influences it played in kind of a right away of uh, kind of creative mediums. Um, and then as we move to kind of the seventh moment and kind of, I think Kate touched on this a bit with the Dada movement, but talking about Marcel Duchamp and Man Ray's uh, rotary glass plates and kind of its introduction into kind of optical art a bit and uh, kind of its significance. And I wanted to ask Peter, like why you felt this particular piece was important to include into the timeline and maybe even the specific 10 moments that we cover in, in this uh, Twitter space. Yeah, so for me, this moment, it goes back to that uh, genealogy of arts and crafts, Art Nouveau, Constructivism, Bauhaus, uh, Victor Vezzarelli, Grav, you know, that went into, from there, cybernetic art, you know, Nicholas Schaeffer, arts and technology movement. So I, I think that cybernetic, you can't talk about the history of generative art, you know, without talking about cybernetic art and... And this early luminokinetic art of Man Ray and Duchamp uh, was was really an important step. Again, in that kind of freeing art from the static canvas and you know letting it kind of uh, express itself more in terms of dynamism and motion and light. And that's exactly what these kind of early kinetic uh, sculptures represent. And Kate, is there anything you wanted to add to that, or should we move to the next moment? Or? No, I think it's. Uh, I had a question why you chose particularly that work by Marcel Duchamp, and 
Man Ray, but it makes makes absolute sense. Um, yeah, now you talked about it, so it's all fine. Um, I just wanted to mention that uh, while I was going through the historical point milestones of in, in, in innovations, um, I was fascinated because neon lights were found in 1910. Like. That's how early everything was. And I think during that time of the creation of this work, it was already like sound on film technology invented. And if you think about it, it's fascinating how all the tools that we are using every day uh, in our lives were invented, invented so, so early. I mean, no wonder that, you know, people were so creative with all this innovation around them. Yeah, I think that that's such a really good point. It's like as soon as a lot of this in, like technology comes out, people are already starting to think about how they can use it in a creative way. And and I think that's one of the uh, the, the beautiful things about art and, and just people as well. Yeah, I think like science and, and, you know, innovation and arts, you know, I think they're also very, very close to one another. And I think now that we are going closer to the computer inventions and, and, you know, more to contemporary scene, I think it's very important to feature all this uh, scientific and innovation uh, creations. Yeah, that's kind of a perfect transition into kind of our next moment talking about Conrad Zeus and some of his, his largest inventions, whether that's the Z1 or Z3 or, or ENIAC that we have all included into the timeline. Um, and maybe, Peter, you can expand on maybe Zeus's evolution of building these machines and kind of what each new development brought with uh, each of the things and maybe even some of his influential work with plotter machines and, and other inventions. Yeah. I mean, Zeus is such a interesting character in the story, uh, you know, because he was, he was making these highly technical, extremely, you know, uh, you know, he was making mainframe computers before they even existed. You know, these he was making the very first digital computers ever in, you know, basically his uh, his mother's basement in Germany while World War II was going on. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just such a, a, a fascinating story and so fascinating. I mean, that, you know, after the, the Z1 uh, and he created this, you know, Z3 a few years later, uh, that it was it was actually destroyed uh, by Allied bombing in in World War II uh, in in 1941. So the the very first kind of functioning programmable digital computer that paved the way for kind of so much in computer science, and then this story about art, his uh, you know digital art and generative art, uh, you know it was. Uh, kind of very unceremoniously destroyed just two years after it was built. And I, you know, I think that's very uh, a fascinating story. If you want to look into that more, uh, we only have a few more minutes here. Uh, Kate, is there anything you wanted to add about Zeus or, or just any kind of comments you wanted to have about, you wanted to make about the timeline or the chapter in general? Um, well, I like innovation. So, I mean, all this like first computer, PT, it was destroyed. And then ANIAC, which was also not, um, like there were other computers uh, that had combinations that, uh, with these features, but ANIAC, I think, was the only one 
which had all this full spectrum of programmable electronic and general purpose digital computer. Um, again, why all this innovation so fast and so vividly uh, taking place and also German engineer, we are in the middle of World War Second, So no wonder that, um, you know, innovation and science are the first ones to win any war. Um, so I guess, you know, this is also very much connected again to, to, further, uh, to further development of computers and artificial intelligence and uh, all the philosophers that emerged later. And I think we are going to talk about cybernetics and further theory of communication as our last chapter, right? Yes, that's correct, Gates. Um, that's the last moment that we want to discuss in this uh, in this space. Uh, it's actually two moments combined in 1948. Uh, so Norbert Norbert Wiener wrote uh, cybernetics, um, and Claude Shannon uh, wrote the uh, mathematical theory of communication, um, and. To finish it off, Peter, like, why are these two texts like so important? Um, yeah, like as groundwork for for generative arts. Yeah, so I mean, Max Spencer in you know the the fifties and sixties would kind of develop this theory of cybernetics and and kind of information theory, and he was really interested in kind of how how these generative systems, uh, how they, or also how you could quantify aesthetics. And uh, it was really important moment when Norbert and uh, in, in 1947, 1948, and it also happened to be at MIT where so much of the story of, of generative art takes place, you know, coined the word cybernetics. And uh, it was, in that same year that Norbert, uh, that Norbert Wiener uh, published uh, cybernetics was then a mathematical theory of communication. And so, you know, that's, those are just two kind of seminal uh, works that would go on to influence Max Spencer. And then that kind of early, especially Franco, uh, you know, German uh, computer art of the 1960s with Georg Nies and, and uh, those guys on Stuttgart. So uh, this was kind of the beginning of that uh, movement in cybernetics, uh, but from the, this is the theoretical foundations of it. Awesome, thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, so this, this was the last moment we wanted to discuss for this chapter. Um, in next week, we will be launching our, our, our third chapter um, that will that will talk about the 1950s. Um, and just as a small teaser, like in the 1950s, we, we covered the rise of computing and the first artwork made uh, on analog computers, um, including pioneering work of Mary Ellen Butte and Ben Lobowski. We will also cover the rise of cybernetic, conceptual and kinetic art, um, which are three profoundly influential developments in the rise of digital generative arts. I just want to thank um, all of you for listening in. And of course, Gates, for uh, joining us to, to discuss this chapter. Uh, it was really, yeah, it was amazing to have you, Gates. Thank you very much, guys. I hope I could be of a good guest. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Kate. You amazing, really Kate. Yeah, thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Thank you. Have yeah, a good so, day. Oh, thank you, we, Kate. We do uh, have a request. 
if you can stay on for one minute, I can give Grace the the microphone. Sorry, sure. I just saw it now. Hey, Grace, you should be Hi. able to, to talk. <laughs> Uh, Hi, Grace. Thank you so much. Yes. So this is Grace. I, I do have a question. Could could we have a space to discuss the Bauhaus? Because it's such an important <laughs> movement that it's also part of our lives today, right? Hundred years later. And um I mean there's something about the structure of it, the longevity uh, that is very particular. Evidently, and I don't know what it is, but if we can discuss it and just try to figure it out together, that would be great. Yeah, we can do that. I mean, if, if you are yeah, all what interested, do you think, it's... because it's, it definitely well, transcends uh, that, that moment, and I think it would still be, you know, important in 100 years from now. And that's very hard for any kind of art or even architecture to do. Absolutely. I, I think if the hosts are up for that, I'm very much enthusiastic to speak about Bauhaus. There's so much to discuss. It's very diverse and it's full of uh, historical uh, milestones, period, um, with fantastic uh, line of artists. Yeah, I would, I would definitely love to. And we didn't even get a chance to really talk about the weaving workshop much. So uh, I, I think you could have a a space, a full space about any of these 10 moments that, that we talked about today. And uh, really, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, for thanks, Grace, for the yeah, amazing we suggestion. Had this, we had this uh, on the timeline for Günther Stolz uh, workshops to, to discuss that, but we kind of skipped it somehow. Sorry about this. I think I'm just going to put it on a blog and timeline, everything what we discussed with all the events and political points and innovation as a, you know, kind of a help. Okay, I wish we could talk all day with, with you about each of these moments. That would be uh, ideal. But yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us, Kate. Like, honestly, perfect, perfect guest. Uh, so interesting to hear what you had to say. and, and uh, we, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. Have a good evening. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank Bye. you, guys. Bye. Thank you so much.